how should Christians live as we await for the advent of Christ? That, that's really the, the question, one of the main questions that Paul answers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22. That's our text for this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it right now, starting in verse 12. So please feel free to read along with me. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil, anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So before we get deep into this text, I want to give you some background to what Paul has been doing through the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians in this letter. So Paul spends really the first few chapters encouraging this church. This was a letter written to the church in Thessalonica, and he spends the first few chapters encouraging them because of, of their example of faith, their partnership with him and his ministry. He reminds them of how much he loves them, how much he misses them, how he wants to see them again. But then in chapter 4, he, he starts some of his pastoral encouragements or admonitions. And one of the main things he addresses with them is the return of Christ. And you have to read between the lines a little bit, but it seems like a problem they were having is that they were worried, they were concerned that those who had died before the return of Christ would be forgotten somehow. So Paul is writing, one of the things he does is he assures them that those who have fallen asleep, as he says, or those who have died, will rise again when Christ returns. But then he uses that as a segue, and he, he shows them just other things that are going to happen at the return of Christ. And he gives them a glimpse, actually, of how unbelievers will experience the return of Christ, experience this day of the Lord. And, and towards the end of, of chapter 4, he says that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, or, or, or like the inevitable day of delivery for a pregnant woman. In other words, Jesus is going to come suddenly, and Jesus is going to come painfully for those who are not in Christ. So this is just a really good reminder right now of the importance of responding to the gospel now while there's still a chance. Jesus, Jesus took on humanity. He lived a sinless life. He died as a sacrifice for everyone who would trust in him. And every person in this room is a sinner in desperate need of the saving work of Christ, in desperate need of this sacrifice. So friend, if you're, if you're listening today, and you're not, a, you're not a believer, God is calling on you to see your sin. He's calling on you to turn from it. And he's calling you to, on you to embrace Jesus in faith. He offers forgiveness to everybody who would trust in him, to everybody who would believe. And Paul is saying that, that Jesus is coming back so some people are going to be ready. 
And some, some of us, most of us, hopefully, will, will see him and welcome him gladly as our king. But others won't be ready. And they will see Jesus with fear as their dreaded judge. So if you're hearing this today, today is the day of salvation. But for believers, we shouldn't be surprised by the day of the Lord coming. We shouldn't be surprised by the Lord's return. That's what Paul says, starting in chapter 5, verse 6. Paul says, so then, let us, now this is talking to Christians, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of, the helmet, uh, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So in other words, Christians, God's people, should be ready for the second coming of Christ. We should be ready for his advent. And looking forward to this future, Paul is saying, changes the way we live today. We're to live sober, vigilant, prepared lives. But the question is, how does that play itself out in the life of the church? How can a church live faithfully in this time of waiting? How can a church live faithfully in this time of waiting for the advent of Jesus? That's one of the main things that Paul is dealing with in verses 12 through 22. So with all that in mind, with that, that background, I think Paul's instructions to the church in the verses I read earlier can be broken up into three different categories. This is really the outline for my message today. These three different categories. Paul shows how the coming of Christ influences the way you live with your elders, with one another, and with God. So your elders with one another and with God. Um, So those are the three categories. And with that in mind, Paul's first admonition is to respect your elders. You see this clearly in verses 12 and 13. Paul begins this section with the charge, and the ESV reads, Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. This is a clear call to recognize and to respect your pastors. So I'm reading from the ESV, and and they chose to translate that first command as respect. And that's a fine translation, but that word can also mean recognize or acknowledge. And I actually think this is a little bit closer to what Paul is getting at here. So by saying recognize them or acknowledge them, Paul is saying that we ought to recognize the God-given authority and the office of those who serve as elders. And we live in a world, we live in a culture where authority structures are constantly being overturned and and delegitimized. And like every children's movie you watch just about, it's almost always the parents or some other authority picture who who ends up looking really dumb in the end. And, And this kind of distrust for authority in many ways is just built in to even our American way of thinking. 
And the dangerous thing is that these instincts, maybe to just speak up for ourselves all the time, to demand our rights, to buck authority, actually influences the way, in a negative way, how we think about our pastors, how we think about the spiritual authorities that God has placed in our lives. And this passage reminds us to recognize the men who serve us and labor for us. But these verses also tell us to esteem them very highly in love. This kind of of loving respect ought to shape the way you, you, you interact with your pastors. So this isn't just some kind of callous submission to authority. This is a genuine, heartfelt love and admiration. So respect your elders. Love your elders. Speak well of your elders. Speak kindly to your elders. And Paul doesn't only tell us what to do. He gives us the motivation of why to do it. He says that your elders labor among you. He says, they are over you. They admonish you. Your elders work hard for you. They meet regularly to pray for you. They meet regularly to plan for you. They make sure your gatherings run smoothly. They bring structure to different ministries. They work for you. They manage the church. But they also admonish you. They warn you at times. They lovingly and gently confront you when you're falling into sin. They regularly, weekly open up the word for you and clearly teach you the word of God. They teach you the warnings of scripture. Hebrews 13, 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So your elders are watching over your souls, and one day they're going to give an account to God for you. They're going to give account as they stand before Jesus as the chief shepherd and answer for how they did. That is a weighty thought. That's a big burden that they carry for you. And they're willing to put themselves under that burden for you because they love you. And they want you to flourish in your relationship with Christ. That's a big deal. And they don't do this for the praise of men, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't praise them and affirm them for what they do for you. So show them the loving respect that they deserve. Like that passage in Hebrews said, do it in such a way where it's a joy for them. Don't always be the squeaky wheel. Don't always be that person. Certainly go to them when you have problems. Go to them when you have stuff. But, but I hope for every problem and for every critique you bring them, you, you are giving them 10 times as many words of admonition and thanksgiving. It's for your benefit as well as theirs. So do this. Another just small way to care for your pastors is to care for their families. Each, each one of your pastors is married and has a wife. They have children. Ask about them, talk to them, pray for them. There are a few things that will please your pastor, honor your pastor more than caring for their families to do this. And and I already mentioned this, but one of the main ways that your pastors care for you is through weekly 
preaching and teaching the word of God to you. So I want to add one quick word uh, regarding sermons and how you, how you could respond. First, say something to your pastor after he preaches. It doesn't mean everybody has to say something every week, but say something. It's weird when you're done speaking and like nobody says anything. It, it makes you, it feels really weird. You're like, oh, I don't, what, what just happened? So say something. He, he doesn't just need an attaboy or some shallow pick-me-up every time, but he wants to know that you heard him and that the word is changing you. And also, if you do say something, maybe even go beyond just saying, good sermon, pastor, that, that's fine. But it, tell him maybe a specific area of the sermon or a point that really meant something to you. I know you guys have been going through Ephesians. You know how meaningful it would be? And I'm, I'm assuming all of you have already done this. I'm just telling you what you've already done. But if you were to go to Jacob and say, hey, you went through Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 a few weeks ago, and it really helped me see how I think my prayer life is, is deficient in some, in some ways. And I've been using that as a model for prayer. And it's made such a difference to me. Thank you. You know how meaningful that is? Do that. Let them know that you are hearing and receiving the word. And all these things to say, respect your pastors when they are not around and respect them when they are around with your words, with your actions, with your love. Also, notice how Paul says, those who labor among you. That means you need to give particular uh, care and consideration for your pastors over other pastors. I'll say it this way. John Piper doesn't care about you. John MacArthur doesn't care about you. Your favorite podcast guy or author doesn't care about you. You know why? Because they don't know you. They don't even know you exist. Okay? Your pastors are your pastors. It's a very profound statement. They know you by name. They love you. And it is good, it is great to get spiritual encouragement from all kinds of places, from those outside of your church. But I hope that one of the main places that you are regularly refreshed and encouraged is in your church by your pastors. So that means that you should never compare your pastors to these other famous people. Don't, don't compare teaching styles, sermons. That is unloving. That is unbiblical. Don't do that. I happen to know each of your pastors. I love each of your pastors. And, and they have cared for me in different times, and I know they love you. So respect them. So the question is, that's great, how does all this, in, in my mind, and more importantly in Paul's mind, deal and relate to the second coming of Christ? Well, I'm glad I asked. Uh, I, when, when Jesus comes back, he's going to come as our conquering king. Jesus will be our pastor. Jesus will be our spiritual leader. So your submission to and respect for your shepherds today is preparing you for the day when Jesus, as your chief shepherd, comes back. Jesus loves us. He serves us. He labors among us. And so he will command our utmost love and respect, and we will give it to him gladly. We'll give it to him gladly. So how you treat your pastors now is preparing your heart for that reality one day. And again, your pastors love you dearly, respect them, love them, care for them, for their good and for yours. 
Paul's second admonition can be summarized like this. Care for one another. So first, respect your pastors. Next, care for one another. Look at verses 13 through 15. Paul gives what might seem to be a a random list of admonitions on how to live with other Christians in the church. Paul says, Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So the first thing Paul mentions is to be at peace. And and if you've read just about any of the letters in the New Testament, you know that New Testament Christians often struggle to live at peace with one another. And, And if you have spent 30 minutes in just about any church, you know that Christians still struggle with the same thing, right? As fellow believers, we can be easily divided, distracted, discouraged, disillusioned with one another. So this kind of peace, this kind of unity, it isn't found in a church with people who just feel the same way about the same things. That's not what this is talking about. That might make things easier for a season, but that's not the kind of peace that Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about a peace that is born out of and focused on our relationship to Jesus. So we don't find peace through, through just unity on politics on sports teams, ice cream flavors, your favorite James Taylor album, as important as those things might be, right? That's, that's not where peace comes from. That's because the church isn't primarily a social club where we just get together to share the things we like to do together. The church is the very body of Christ united under Jesus as, his, as our head. There are a lot of things that can threaten peace within a church. But a corporate commitment to the centrality of Christ helps drive out that which would come in and cause division. So he says, be at peace. Next, Paul urges us to admonish the idol. We saw that word admonish before when it comes to the work of pastors. But here we see that this work of admonition or this work of warning is for all Christians, especially those who are idle or who are lazy. So if Christ is coming soon, then there's not time to waste on laziness or foolishness. That doesn't mean that as Christians we can't enjoy leisure. But it does mean that our lives shouldn't be marked by doing nothing. And it shouldn't be marked by doing just a bunch of dumb stuff all the time. It's so easy to just drift towards this kind of laziness. It's our natural bent as sinners. So the point is here, we need one another, we need other Christians to do the hard work of being watchful for us and being caring enough to, to wake us up when we need it. And, and this kind of confrontation is actually, is actually an act of love. It, it's not some harsh slap in the face out of frustration. It's a gentle warning to, to help others see what they're doing and where they're going. So the question is, is do you love other people in your church enough to put yourself in the awkward position of warning them when you see different areas of laziness, different areas of idleness in their lives? 
Paul then says, to encourage the faint-hearted. So we're called to do the hard work of admonition and confrontation, but we also need to keep a watchful eye on those who are struggling and those who need encouragement. This has been a weird year. This has been a difficult year for a lot of people. So we should all be looking for those in the church who seem to be struggling. But the safe bet is just to assume that people need encouragement when they come in. People need that. And Paul isn't talking about fluffy stuff. As Christians, we have the very riches of God and Christ to give to one another, to help those who need. So feed yourself with the word enough so that you have something to give to those in need. Um, Next, Paul says that we are called to to help the weak. So if the faint-hearted, if the faint-hearted are those who are struggling with discouragement, it seems like the weak are likely those who are experiencing some kind of physical or maybe even financial problems. So, So don't be like those Christians that James warns us against. Who, who just say, you know, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things they need for the body. No, we are body and soul, and both of those needs need to be met and should be met in the body of Christ. So help the weak. And maybe as I go through this kind of list where we talk about the faint-hearted, the weak, the idle, and maybe instead of thinking about how you can help other people, maybe you're just hearing that, like, that's me right now. Maybe that's you. Maybe you are the one who feels just weary, worried, weak, wounded. Know that you are surrounded by the very body of Christ. So that your weakness, your issues, your stuff should not keep you from coming to church with other people. So as not to be burdened to them. Your burdens put you in the perfect position to receive the love and the gentleness and the kindness of Jesus through the people of Jesus. We are all weak. We are all weak in our own, and we need the body of Christ to lift us up, to care for us, to bear our burdens. So Paul says that we are called to be patient with all those in need. And he ends this section on caring for one another by warning against sinful retaliation, and vengeance. There's no place for Christians to seek vengeance or retaliation, especially in light of the second coming of Christ. We, as Christians, trust that King Jesus will right these wrongs and that he will bring righteousness and justice that we long for. Instead, we're called to do good to one another and to everyone, those inside the church and those outside the church. We ought to be just constantly plotting and scheming for the good of one another. So so all these things kind of put together. How do these calls to care for one another fit in the context of being prepared for for the second coming of Christ? First, this is the kind of kingdom, this is the kind of culture that Jesus will be bringing with him. He he will wipe every tear from our eyes. He will strengthen the weak. He will motivate the tired. So we wait longingly for that, for that hope to be fulfilled. But right now, we seek to create a culture in which these things are embodied, in which these things are happening today 
however imperfectly they might be. And, and as we seek to, to build churches, as you seek to be a church today that embodies this kind of culture, you are going to be able to see Jesus more clearly and his kingdom more clearly. So do this. Care for one another. So in light of Christ's return, Paul is telling you to respect your pastors, respect your elders, care for one another, and finally, commune with God. Commune with God. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Joy, prayer, gratitude. These are meant to be three of the, of the primary pillars that any faithful church is built upon. So first, rejoice always. Rejoice always. And that's going to be a strange, it's a strange thing to think that, that God commands this kind of affection that often feels so elusive. He commands us to rejoice. But if, if we think of, of joy like some just giddy, fluffy bubbliness, then it's no wonder why we don't know what it means to always rejoice. Seasons shift. Circumstances change. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. And, and if your joy is found primarily in people or in circumstances, it, it's going to fall away as easily as an autumn leaf. And when the winds of difficulty blow in, our, our joy will be snatched away. Our joy will be lost. So if we're ever going to have this kind of of constant joy, we must hide our joy in Jesus, who never shifts, never changes. Joy is a deep contentment and satisfaction in Jesus that should be present in, in seasons of great happiness and blessing, but also in the dark valleys of pain and suffering. And if that doesn't seem possible to you, if that seems elusive to you, keep reading. The next phrase is, pray without ceasing. We need the constant help of God to find our constant joy in Jesus. So we ask for it. We ask for it. We pray for it. Lives marked by joy in God are lives marked by prayer to God. So pray in the morning. Pray before you read your Bible. Pray after you read your Bible. Pray while you drive. Pray before you open up social media. Pray after you've been a punk on social media. Pray with your family. Pray for your family. Pray without ceasing. A prayerless life shows a prideful heart. So pray. Also, give thanks in all circumstances. Much like rejoicing always, this means being thankful in good times and bad times. All circumstances. And that doesn't mean that we should be happy about pain and suffering, maybe for their own sake. But but as followers of Jesus, we can legitimately thank God for all the things that he allows. Knowing that they truly are for our good and for his glory. Even if It means temporal pain right now. So gratitude, being thankful, is an attitude, but it's also a choice. We choose to be thankful. So give thanks in all times. 
And it says that all these things are God's will for your life. You know, we often pray that we would know what God's will is. And when we're, when we're doing that, we're thinking, what's God's will for these big things? What's God's will for the big stuff, these big moves, these big changes? That matters. But, but I think it's more important for you to know God's will for you in the day-to-day than for you to know what God's will is for 10 years from now. And this is it. It's joy. It's prayer. It's gratitude. And when you're pursuing those things faithfully and consistently, all that other stuff's going to work itself out. Now, I want to address briefly what's going on in verses 19 through 21. It says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. There, I did it. Just kidding. These verses are complicated. And honestly, the more I study this, I don't want to do these verses a disservice by giving what is really like a 30-minute to an hour-long conversation in two minutes. So I'm going to suffice it to say that we shouldn't set aside the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our churches. We need to be discerning, yes, but we can't forget the importance of the Spirit's work in fueling all of these things. And we should know that the clearest way in which the Holy Spirit speaks to us today is through His Word. So don't quench the Spirit's work by ignoring His Word. So in light of the second coming of Christ, in light of His coming advent, our churches should be marked by a growing passion for for just joyful prayer and thanksgiving, as well as a deep commitment to the work and the word of the Holy Spirit. And and this kind of church-wide communion with God, um, it's going to do two different things. One, it's going to strengthen you so that you can wait faithfully for Christ's return. It's easy, again, to get distracted, to get discouraged by what's going on around us. And it's easy for us to think of Christ's return as some kind of myth or some kind of fairy tale. We've been waiting for it for 2,000 years. It hasn't happened yet. It's easy for us to not believe it's going to happen. But when you are daily fighting for joy in him, the joy and anticipation for his return is going to grow in you. And when you are in regular communion with him in prayer, We're going to just long for the day when we can speak with him, converse with him face to face. So these different means of grace here will help us to wait faithfully instead of growing discouraged. And the second thing that it's going to do in your church is it's going to strengthen your, your, your witness to other people. Your witness to tell others about the second coming of Christ. Because your joy is just going to overflow in, in a faithful gospel witness to the lost. The, the watching world needs to hear the words, the message of the gospel from your lips. But they also need to see it in your life, at, in your demeanor, in your attitude. So with all these things, when you think about just preparing for Christ's coming, really for the end of the world, we, you've heard of these, maybe seen these, some of these shows, these doomsday preppers who have these underground bomb shelters full of ammo, canned goods, and DVDs of the Andy Griffith show. They got it all, right? That, 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 that's one way to prepare for the end, right? But Paul is showing us a better way 
to prepare. It's not as flashy, but it is infinitely more meaningful, infinitely more valuable. And here's what he says. Respect your elders. Care for one another. Commune with God. That's it. It's nothing fancy, but it sure isn't easy. These things are simple to talk about, but these are impossible commands apart from the constant help of God. I'm not sure if REM really felt fine about the end of the world, but as God's people, as Christians, we can be and should be the most joyful people, the most hope-filled, big-hearted, thankful people in the world. What does a Christmas song say? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. So, so during this Advent season, as we reflect on the first coming of Christ, that was marked by humility, let's also seek to have hearts that are, are waiting and longing for his second coming and all of his glory. Now I just want to close with, with the short benediction that Paul gives. He says, now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Father, we need your help. We need your grace. You are faithful. Help us to remain faithful as well. I pray that this Christmas season that we would enjoy all the the traditions that we normally do. But I pray that this Christmas season that, that we would reflect on both the first and the second coming of Christ with longing, with hope, with joy and anticipation. We need your help. We need your grace. And we are confident that you are with us in Jesus Christ. I pray these things in his name. Amen.